Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, just a few days into the COP26 climate summit, 18-year-old activist Greta Thunberg said that the summit itself was, quote, turning into a greenwash campaign, a PR campaign. We'll look at company promises to reach net zero emissions targets and other green claims. But first, some of the most visible climate activists in Glasgow, like Thunberg, have also been the youngest. We'll talk with California youth activists both at COP26 and keeping track from home and get their thoughts on the impact of the climate talks ending this week and what should come after. Join us. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Delegates at the COP26 Climate Conference have made promises to invest significantly in cutting greenhouse gas emissions, to hold warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius and other agreements, though they've been less clear on concrete steps. We look at how that's going over with young climate activists who've been among the most vocal in Glasgow about the need for immediate action. And joining me first is Isaias Hernandez, an environmental educator and a content creator from Los Angeles. Isaias is at COP26. Thanks so much for joining us, Isaiah. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. What has it been like to be there? Yeah, you know, as a youth attending this conference, there has been a lot of information pollution. The last two weeks of COP26 is attending conferences, whether they're early at 8 a.m. and staying there late until 6 to 7 p.m. Um, there is a lot of negotiations that are ongoing and Specifically, my role at attending COP is to hear the sessions, especially from the United States perspective. Yes. Did you set goals for yourself in terms of what you wanted to to learn and also communicate to others? 
Yeah, some of the things that a lot of my community had is to communicate the information, right? And there's a lot of documents that are constantly being published online. And one specifically looked into last week where, you know, Biden unveils his pledge to slash the global methane emissions by 30%. Yes. What we knew entering COP26 is that there was going to be negotiations talking about methane reduction. And so although this plan has been uh, forwarded by the Biden administration back in September, um, they've been working really hard to increase the number of signatories and momentum behind the pledge. And it was very interesting to see that, you know, um, they're focusing on reducing methane emissions, specifically looking into the municipal landfills, um, oil wells, coal mines and agriculture sector. And so you're finding that to be basically making you feel optimistic that they are coming together in terms of trying to address cutting emissions of methane? And is it also making you optimistic about the U.S.'s role at this conference, the way it's trying to lead? You know, in, in some ways I do feel some hope, but also realistically the United States government has done a, a poor job to really address the environmental injustices that have been happening and the acknowledgement of emissions role, especially CO2, CO2, for example, has been used a lot over the last decades and methane should also ha should have been included in a lot of negotiation spaces. And so the United States making these pledges and goals does seem a bit more... Um, acceptable, but it's also important to recognize that 30% um, of the U of methane emissions in the U.S. comes specifically from the oil and gas industry. And so right now, what we're seeing is Biden is also unveiling plans to um, develop new oil and gas pipelines, which is a bit counterintuitive of the pledge that they're trying to dedicate to. Yes. You have strong views and a lot that you want to be able to say and communicate about some of these inconsistencies. Have you found it challenging to get into the events that you want to get into, to be able to say what you want to say and have it be heard and respected at this conference? Oh, absolutely. When you enter COP26, there are certain sessions and delegation rooms that are not permitted. As you know, Obama, President Obama, former President Obama um, had attended and he actually had his event very private. And so you weren't actually able to attend unless you had a pass, which already makes it very frustrating as someone who has a blue zone pass to enter. And I didn't get the opportunity to go listen. And so I think as youth, you know, we often don't get the time to ask questions. And even if we do get the opportunity to ask questions, they also check your questions beforehand to make sure that you're asking a question that all panelists would feel comfortable addressing. And so there almost seems like there's this like pushback um, for youth not to be really disrupting these spaces and high level security and police ensuring that any type of clothing or artwork is um, completely removed when entering events. Wow. And so what do you think that's about? You know, I think primarily it's just the fact of how, um, you know, politicized climate change is today and the fact of how world leaders and governments are have not been held accountable. And I think that this year's COP26, they added much more policing and much more of uh, security to ensure, quote unquote, COVID restrictions. But in reality, it's to uh, further stop um, you know, indigenous communities and people from the frontline communities from the global north and south to have a seat at the table because most often now what's happening is now you can't even protest outside without having a permit. 
So therefore, the security has made it very um, difficult for young people to even have protests without being arrested or threatened to have your badge removed. Were you at the youth-led strike that was organized by Fridays for Future? Yes, I attended it. And unfortunately, you know, the strike was actually outside at a park. So the whole street going into the blue zone and the green zone at COP26 is uh, uh, fenced off. And you have a lot of police cars um, blocking the whole street, even um, miles away from the entrance. And so um, attending, you know, the, the climate strike protest was very liberating because you had different types of um, older generations, younger generations and mid-generations coming together and addressing the inequities and the global injustices that had been happening and how our world leaders have really failed us in a lot of ways. And so it was a really time for healing, but also a time for resting. I'm talking with Isaiah Hernandez, an environmental educator and content creator at Queer Brown Vegan. And Isaiah is in Glasgow right now telling us about his experiences and his impressions of COP26 and how the youth climate movement is being received. You, our listeners, can join the conversation with your questions for Isaiah at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email us forum at kqed.org. We'd also love to hear your impressions of COP26 and what it accomplished and where you feel it may have fallen short as it comes to a close this week. And Isaiah, what got you into climate activism? What made you a climate activist? Yeah, that's a really great question. So I am from originally from Los Angeles, California, also known as Thongville Land. And at a young age, I grew up in a low-income area. I lived in Section 8 affordable housing and nearby toxic facilities. And one thing I noticed at a very early age in my environmental education journey is the fact of lack of resources public schools, K-12, through in low-income areas receive equitable education. And when I, as I got older, I realized that um, these systems and these policies that were pushed into um, toxic facilities to be implemented to low-income communities of color was actually by design. And that's when I got really rooted in my work through environmental justice at a young age and really went to go study environmental science at UC Berkeley to learn more about how to communicate this to in communities that are very invested in science and also validating their own personal lived experiences as a form of science. It sounds like communication is one way that you feel like the climate movement could improve? Yeah, you know, I would say that it's really ensuring that indigenous science and Western science can both coexist at the same time. What we've seen, especially from climate scientists reporting news on data, is that they have extensive amounts of research and expertise to communicate um, climate change within their own fields. But what is missing is the cultural component and what that means to a lot of low-income communities of color. And so um, as we've seen the rise of social media, especially with TikTok, Instagram, and other platforms, there is this investment for younger generations to get involved and to have these equitable forms of education online, which I think communicators play a huge role in, in today's movement to ensure that people are actually understanding the real roots and messages behind what is being communicated. Well, I want to bring another climate activist into the conversation, Nick Vasco. They're a youth climate organizer and program manager with 350 Bay Area. Nick Vasco, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me this morning. Question to you, too. 
in terms of how you became a climate activist, what made you want to do environmental activism? Uh, right. So, um, you know, I'm from an immigrant community and part of my work prior to the climate movement is in the immigrants' rights movement. Um, and I actually did my master's work at University of San Francisco, focusing on uh, climate change and migration, so forced displacement of people. Um, and then, you know, from there, just really analyzing how policies really um, harm people, right? So immigration policies, climate policies, energy policies, um, really create this harm for people worldwide. Um, made me want to focus on climate change, right? Um, so climate change undergrids like every social justice movement around the world from indigenous rights movements to um, refugee populations to, um, you know, here in the Bay Area, migrant workers um, who are forced to breathe smoke and work during the smoke season or, or forcibly displaced because of fires. And you've been keeping up with the events of COP26 in Glasgow from your home in the Bay Area. Give me a sense of whether you've seen or heard any discussions that make you feel optimistic about some of the issues that you just laid out that inspired you to get involved. Sure, yeah, we've been we've been following from here in the Bay Area because um, part of our org is really focusing on how um, you know we can engage leaders in the Bay Area, but also at the state. Um, there is a little bit of you know optimism because today um, the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance was announced, which is initiated by Costa Rica and, and Denmark, with California joining on as a you know a subnational um, yes. member, which is which is encouraging. Um, but that that requires a lot, right? So right now the you know the California Democratic Party is more or less you know punting the issue on divesting from fossil fuels. So you know the the state and the party are two separate entities, but it's kind of you know it's to be seen whether or not that's actually going to um, result in any changes statewide. What do you think of California's role generally? You've pointed out some of the inconsistencies. What do you think California needs to? do in terms of leading on the climate front? <laughs> well, I think California, especially our elected officials, need to really own up to, um, to a lot of the rhetoric they use. So um, from the state down to local leaders, we hear basically everybody runs as some form of environmentalist or, or says that they're going to um, you know, ensure future generations you know, have a livable future. But um, it wasn't until you know, that unfortunate, really terrible oil spill off the coast of Southern California that um, Governor Newsom kind of <laughs> backed up some of his pledges to, um, you know, moratoriums on drilling. Um, but we need to really start making sure that we're going to actually be ending, you know, drilling, whether it's offshore drilling, fracking, um, and that we're also closing down expansion, um, expansion of uh, like Alessio Canyon, uh, natural gas resources, like Isaiah was mentioning. We're talking with members of the youth climate movement, and we'll have more with them after the break as we get their impressions of COP26. Stay with us. This is Forum. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How?! 
You'll have to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about COP26 through the lens of youth climate activists. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation if you have questions for our guests, if you have impressions of COP26 that you would like to share about California's role in it or lack of role. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. We're talking with Isaias Hernandez, an environmental educator and content creator at Queer Brown Vegan, who is in Glasgow at COP26. Also, Nick Vasco is with us, youth climate organizer and program manager with 350 Bay Area. And I'd also like to bring into the conversation now Anaya Butler, an organizer with Youth versus Apocalypse. Anaya, thanks so much for being here. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I know that you have tried to follow what's been happening um, in Glasgow, but that you've been pretty busy. It's been pretty hard to keep up because that you you have a lot going on with youth versus apocalypse. Can you talk a little bit about what you have gleaned from um, what you've been able to hear about COP26, but also why you're so busy? Yes, um, so I have been able to hear a few of the speeches and just like some of the opinions um, from my other YVA members. But um, yeah, I've just heard, you know, there has been like a lot of hopeful sort of, you know, bills and legislation that can help, you know, us sort of through this climate crisis, but not the, you know, concrete plans to back it up. So that's sort of disappointing. Um, but Youth versus Apocalypse has been um, organizing Um, these big actions every month now since August um, basically leading up to COP and just you know figuring out our different demands and targets and so we've been really busy organizing that we've also started going back into schools leading um, writing um, presentations and stuff like that about climate change and ways that youth can get involved and so right now we're just really busy trying to educate youth about climate change and how they're impacted by it and sort of help them realize they have a place in the movement. What is the action that you're planning for November? Um, this is still in the works, but we recognize that doing these actions can be very tiring. Um, and like, you know, we're always fighting and fighting and fighting. And so we wanted to have um, an action that is allowing us to be resilient with each other and to, you know, be in community with each other and have a time for us to rest and to give back to our frontline communities. And so we're planning on having um, sort of like a resiliency village where we're going to be giving back to frontline communities, but also just resting with each other. Um, and sort of like talking about these things, but recognizing, you know, all the hard work that we've put in and just, you know, being grateful for each other. Wow. What kind of time commitment and energy does this ask of you, Anaya? Yeah. Um, so I'm like an official YVA staff members. I work at least 18 hours a week. Um, but then sometimes I go over because like I'm involved in many different aspects of YVA, but yeah, a lot of, Um, time commitment when it comes to just like the action planning meetings, doing the tasks, you know, assigned in the action planning meetings. And then I am also just like giving support to other youth to get involved um, and sort of like doing organizing in my school, helping with organizing at other schools. Um, So it is a lot of time commitment. And you're 15. Is that right, Anaya? Yes. Um, Isaiah, I am so struck by hearing Anaya talk about 
the next action really being focused on on rejuvenating and being able to really give your energy to frontline communities and people who are affected. And it's reminding me of a blog post that you had written about, about how to keep that energy and focus and um, how to address also just emotions that can come up um, around the climate movement when sometimes it feels like solutions are so far off and the effects are so present. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you learn by, by meditating on that? Yeah, of course. Something that I've learned within this whole ecological crisis and trying to find more regenerative ways to sustain our energy is to really validate our emotions. But before that, unpacking the effect, how many Black, Indigenous people of the global majority have internalized and normalized injustice, whether it's social, racial, or environmental injustice. And so in times of trying to understand like what it means for them um, communities, especially since they're, they're at the brink of their own um, crises, is asking them, like, where, in fact, do they situate themselves? Like, where do they find humanization throughout this process? And um, the fact of eco-anxiety being, like, the worry for the future is often almost a privilege, right? Because people at themselves already are actively facing other injustices. And so how do we ensure that people don't go directly into eco-anxiety, but rather look at this climate emotion scale that I created from Glenn Albert's words and look into the fact of like, we all have different types of climate emotions. And I believe that both feeling um, hopeful and helpless at the same time can coexist. There's no such thing as having such a binary way of thinking like you're only sad and that's the only way to go. And I think in terms of reflecting within the youth movement is finding localization because often at times solutions and movements are not what you would say um, to be scalable, right? A lot of the times our, our issues that we face and are interconnected indeed, but localization kind of allows us to really focus more within our community relationships and to really build this foundation that allows us to feel more connected to the work that we are doing and realizing that there are different communities that exist out there that are also doing that similar work. And I think localization for a lot of people is the best way to see that change and to really validate themselves to not feel helpless in this movement. Mm, localization. Let me go to caller Bruce in Mountain View. Hi, Bruce. Thanks for calling in. Hi, how are you this afternoon? I'm well. How are you? Good. Um, I wanted to make a plug for youth involvement in the uh, actions of getting ordinances passed at the city level. Um, we have been, I've been on a, been on a number of uh, groups, and it's key if you want to get something passed that you bring, you know, uh, youth into the pictures and the number of um, youth organizations that are, are stepping up. So by all means, you know, if you're in uh, high school or middle school, and you feel strongly about this, there are opportunities for, for you to be able to position yourself in front of city council members, especially given the fact that since they are now um, available remotely, you have the ability to do that without having to worry about having somebody that's young driving back late at night. Well, Bruce, thanks for that recommendation and uh, your echoing sentiments that I think all of our organizers are sharing today. We've also got some comments coming in. Marjorie writes, I was a bit disappointed Governor Newsom decided to stay home for Halloween with his family rather than try to make progress in Glasgow. 
Might his efforts in Glasgow ultimately have been even more important to his family? I wondered, do today's guests have concerns about Newsom's failure to engage? Nick Abasco, let me go to you on that. Uh, yeah, I'd say, you know, it's pretty concerning. Um, he, is a, he is a parent, so I do recognize that, that there's, you know, there's personal commitments. Um, what's more concerning for me is that uh, he, you know, he attended this lavish wedding with Nancy Pelosi presiding from, you know, an oil billionaire's family, right? So that's, that's more on the nose of what was missed by not going to Glasgow was that he did actually invest his time and his presence and, and showed up with, you know, the, uh, the Bay Area Democratic elite. Um, so literally putting you, your face, your time and your money um, into a family that's reaped the benefits of colonialism um, and tearing the world apart for, for profit. Is that something that probably troubles you the most? It's it's something that was articulated quite a bit about this conference, which is the fact that there were a lot of promises, but not necessarily a lot of concrete steps. You did point to one, Nick, where you were talking about how California has committed to at least joining an alliance that will end basically concessions or licensing or leasing for oil and gas exploration and extraction, and that it would try to set a date as well for uh, doing those things. But but beyond that, do you feel like you haven't seen a lot of concrete steps that will actually address, for example, greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah, I'd say, yeah, there, there hasn't really been, you know, this is all pomp and circumstance in Glasgow, right? So there are promises there, whether or not they're binding or non-binding is, 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 really the, is really the key. California being part of the, you know, this idea to, um, phase out oil and gas production is great, but um, without the U.S. commitment, you know, there's still going to be gas flowing into the into the state. And there's still going to be gas flowing out of the country. Um, and so, you know, I think it's really important for listeners to understand that every commitment to keep funding fossil fuels is climate denialism, right? So we can't actually be climate leaders if we're using our money, um, if we're using campaign finances, if we're making sure that every part of our system, um, whether it's pensions, whether it's, um, like I said, campaign finances, or whether it's just like allowing new gas stations to pop up in your local jurisdiction, all of those are climate denialism. And that's what the problem is right now, is we are so focused on trying to counteract decades, decades of fossil fuel misinformation um, mm -hmm. that every time these conferences happen, we're back at page one. Um, you know, the next commitment to potentially meeting again is not until 2025. Um, and so that's pretty unfortunate because most of the, you know, soft agreements from this conference that we might not even get signed um, by the end of the conference um, really keep us at over two degrees Celsius warming. Um, so that's that's not it's not great. Well, Art writes, young people are often discounted. How should California law change? So more young people can impact the world they will inherit. Should we change the voting age? What are your thoughts on that, Anaya? I'd love to go to you, Anaya Butler. Yeah, um, I think that there's like been this narrative that youth are not sort of smart enough when it comes to just, you know, how the government works and politics in general. But I do think that with, especially now, how involved with youth, how involved youth are within the climate justice movement, but just when within the social justice movement as a whole, um, that it would be, we could see like tangible change with that. If we change the voting age, I would say to changing it to 16 might be very beneficial um, to this country, to youth, and then just also to our health, literally, and to our planet. Um, so I do think that will be um, 
that will create a very tangible change. Well, AJ writes, Isaiah, thank you for your activism on behalf of the rest of the world. I'm wondering if young Americans at the conference understand how the balance of power in the U.S. Congress and the dire importance of voting for Democrats in the midterms to somehow increase rather than lose their slim majority in both houses of Congress will decide whether we make progress on climate change or destroy any progress promised at the conference. Isaiah? Yeah, you know, I think that with the youth organizations specifically looking at the environmental NGOs that did attend and had their booths for resources for um, some young people. I think that collectively people from the global majority recognize that um, systemic change is one of the most powerful ways to um, fight to redesign a law or policy to ensure the future collective um, health for people. But I think what is really missing from this point is the fact of there's this endless cycle of failed promises from politicians um, that really make these blank statements in the gray zone to ensure that they are really pleasing their own funders or the people who are supporting them. And so I think um, more and more youth are getting frustrated with this and recognizing that what are other ways to get really involved. And I think with the United States, especially with how laws are passed specifically, there is more mobilization going into youth voting organizations. There's an amazing org called the Plus One Vote that really focuses on the um, advocacy for young people to get out and to go vote. And I think um, as we're seeing more, more details unveil and the silencing of youth, I think there's going to be strong momentum for a new generation of politicians that are generally, that are centered on grassroots activism, centered on community-based relationships to ensure that there's a climate just future. But I think that um, what we've seen with Sunrise, for example, the protesting they were doing on the hunger strike back in DC, um, although it didn't pass, there's really this huge awareness now that is happening. And I think young people are taking action of like, how can we get creative to continue engaging people with the climate crisis? We're talking with Isaiah Hernandez, a Los Angeles-based environmental educator and content creator at Queer Brown Vegan, who is also at COP26 in Glasgow. Nick Vasco is with us, their youth climate organizer and program manager with 350 Bay Area. And Anaya Butler is with us, an organizer with Youth versus Apocalypse. Anaya, what are the key ideas or values that, that guide your work in the climate movement? Yeah, I think just knowing that our struggles, you know, that we face are not separate and that climate change is a problem that started at the root of systems of oppression. Um, and so we have to recognize that and we have to see that climate justice is about dismantling all those systems of oppression because it's not only what is aiding and fueling the climate crisis, but it's also what's allowing um, frontline communities to continue um, to be in this position where we're viewed as disposable and where politicians and corporations can continue to make profit over our lives. And so I think just recognizing that all of our problems and struggles are connected and that we have to fight them, you know, together and sort of view them as one big struggle in order to truly achieve the justice that we want to see um, is what helps me, you know, guide my work as an organizer and as a climate justice organizer. Because there are so many issues that you want to address, and this is something that ties them all together for you. Anaya? Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
I'm wondering, Nick, if you feel there's new energy or momentum from COP26 that can help drive future efforts? Uh, you know, big conferences like this do draw, you know, quite a bit of attention to movement work. So, um, you know, last weekend was an International Day of Solidarity, and we took place in that with an action in Berkeley. And that was one of 400 actions around the world, you know, that, and they're all youth-led. Um, that's hard to deny. Um, part of our action was also uh, recruiting and just passing out information. So, you know, we, we looped through Berkeley around the campuses. And as folks, walk, you know, came out, so, you know, what's all the noise about? We, we, we engaged them with our demands on, on what, we, what we need from uh, world leaders is a just transition. Um, I do see that there's a lot of fatigue, um, especially after surviving, like, um, and, and turning out votes to oust the Trump administration. Um, and so there's complacency. Um, so I think it's really important that big events like this don't just stay big events like this, but they really are markers in um, either progress or, or, or falling backwards in the movement. Isaiah, you personally, from having been there, how are you feeling right now coming out of this? Is there new energy for you? Yeah, you know, I think there's a lot of mixed emotions, uh, both happiness and also frustration. I think that the most important thing that the youth came about and the ones that I was leaving the conference with is the fact that we were able to build stronger relationships with movements, especially towards Indigenous communities that often do not get the platforms that they deserve to, and how to have strategic collaborations between content creators and nonprofits. I think that we've realized that there's a lot of disconnections that have been happening, and there's a lot of internal competition to see who can get funding. But I think, you know, retrospectively, a lot of youth are taking this back to their community and realizing that, yes, while these conferences do serve a purpose for those who are often silenced and, you know, it's better than nothing, but there's also so much more work to be done. And I think with this stronger collective movement of meeting people online and meeting your loved ones that you've been connected with on social media, it kind of validates the work that you're doing. And I think for me, it's really focusing on localizing environmental education for me. And that looks into smaller projects that are smaller scale for my health, my community, and that are also very responsibly made. Well, Isaiah, appreciate you speaking to us from Glasgow. Isaiah Hernandez is an environmental educator and content creator at Queerbound Vegan. Nick Avasco has been with us, youth climate organizer and program manager with 350 Bay Area, and Anaya Butler, an organizer with Youth versus Apocalypse. Really appreciate hearing from all of you. And my thanks to Jennifer Eng, who produced this segment. Stay with us. We'll be talking and digging a little deeper into greenwashing after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Dust don't turn to flowers, skies don't disappear, but I've seen truth on This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. 
So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.